Okay, when we uh, think of the 1980s, people of a certain uh, vintage, it may be Margaret Thatcher, maybe the minor strike, maybe Charlie Dye, or even New Romantics, but racing people will think of this man, ah, Terry Ramsden. It's Terry. the hair, isn't it? It's always been about the barnet, right? Never been any different since I was 19, so why should I change now? Well, you ruffled a few feathers in your early days, coming from a fairly humble background, we can describe it. Can you tell us a bit about how you got to where you got to? Sorry, ruffled feathers? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> how, why would I ruffle feathers? I'm just a very straightforward, hardworking guy with an IQ of 197, who's uh, affectionately known to a lot of people. <laughs> so Michael Marshall being one of them, and Al as ET. Um, with a company called ET Phone Home Limited, funnily enough, which is kind of a dig from the 80s, don't you think? Um, and poignant, um, who come from a humble background in Enfield. Mum and dad were nice, normal, ordinary people. Mum worked in a factory. Dad was a GPO engineer. And I left school early and went to the city and made my fortune from there. They made your fortune in the city, but you, uh, you've got a penchant for gambling, which is why a lot of people would have known of you, as well as a, a success in the penchant for gambling. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, when I first started in the city in 68, I was a very young man and I started in insurance, uh, which was fine and wonderful, but too boring for me. And I moved to the Stock Exchange where I met a, a guy from South End called Peter Little, who was a, a gambler, a habitual gambler. And he used to take me, my department, take me down to the betting shop. And so we began to run races. Um, I've always been a maths guy, so most people would tell you I'm not bad at maths. On a scale of one to 10, I'm pretty near to a 10. Um, some people would say they're 10 plus that, but whatever. The, uh, the issue would always be a maths equation. And so as I became 16 and 17 and 18, I began to bet and to study and to accumulate knowledge in this thing called the brain. And uh, I worked through the normal back office studying old school procedures of dematerialization from a, an old stock certificate into an electronic certificate that kind of stood me in good stead. I mean, you know, for example, this, some people would tell you, is a 20 pound note. It's actually not a 20 pound note. It's 21 pound shares of a company called the Bank of England. And on the back, people would tell you that's a serial number. It's actually not. It's an ISIN number, an international security identification number. So when you take that to the bank, it's a piece of paper. When you give it to the bank, the bank dematerialize it, meaning convert it to electronics. It doesn't become a banknote anymore. It becomes 21 pound units on Terry Ramsden's personal account. And then you can send it anywhere in the world you want by Swift. So the whole of the global network works from this principle. And when I first started, I spent four or five years, uh, four years, dedicating myself to studying all of this process, whether that be Australian gold mining companies that were 100 years old or Bermuda Telephone and Telegraph companies and translating them into electronics. That led me from the back office to become a trader. So here we are in 1978, and Terry decides that Fear Nought can't get beat in the Royal Hunt Cup. So Terry's a young man, made some money, and decides to bet to the maximum 
on Fear Nought. Who duly wins the Royal Hunt Cup, who he cheers home in the chairman's private suite in the partner's area of the firm. Yay! There you go. The gambling bug has bitten well and truly. I made £75,000 on the, the straight bet, together with some cup doubles and trebles, and Ascot was always quite a, a good place, as you saw from history, for me to make. I then decided to evolve myself out of the firm, and I went out on my own the following year, and left the firm and started up Terry Ramston Inc., if you want. The firm duly folded a year after, because obviously I been a major contributor to its revenue. It's called Hedwig Sterling Grumbar. And I'd built the Japanese business. I built a penchant for the ability to dematerialize things, and things that actually were not tangible. A thing called a warrant. We all know what a warrant is. No, Terry, we don't know what a warrant is. Well, if you and I rob a bank and we get caught, we get arrested. If you and I rob a bank and we don't get caught, but the police know we robbed the bank, they go and get a thing called a warrant, which is the right to an arrest. So it's not actually a 20 pound note, it's a right to a 20 pound note. So I figured out, using my years of expertise, how to make an electronic instrument out of warrants, and then I attacked the Japanese market. All the time I'm building my capital, all the time I'm now out of mainstream, I'm no longer with a broker, I'm on my own. So I decided, you know what? You've always liked horses. You've always liked greyhounds. Why don't you just dip your toe in the market and buy some? So in 1980, I think, I bought my first horse, which was a horse called Third Generation, if I remember, with Hugh Collingridge, if I remember, from Newmarket. Um, Horses for courses, you know. What do you want to buy? A Derby winner, the first horse you ever buy. It doesn't happen to many people. Um, that's Alice in Wonderland or it's The Wizard of Oz. I actually coloured The Wizard of Oz from black and white into colour, but that's another story. Um, so my intro into racing began. Between 1980 and 1984, the Japanese market rocketed, and so my particular area of expertise warrants, meaning the ability to buy a £20 note on leverage, meaning you're only really paying £2 on that £20 note. So that £20 note becomes £40. That's very good if you pay £20 for it. If you pay £2 for it, your rate of return looks quite interesting. It becomes a bet, doesn't it? It becomes a gamble. And hence, my rise through the ranks in the warrant market was always based on the maths equation of you buy something for less than what it's worth, but you benefit to the full. So, you know, if you want to have a £10,000 bet on an even money shot, it's a £10,000 bet on an even money shot. If that £10,000 bet on an even money shot pays you 20 to 1, you start to increment capital. Same principle, it's no different. So I would say that my, my gambling mentality, my ability to understand the maths of gambling, of relativity, 
of the of the value and the non-value in a bet in the game in a security in an instrument is a fundamental platform on which my life has been built always from then right up until now today not 2021 but again we won't talk about that story at the moment we'll get around to that in due course so I made some money and then I decided that having capitalized out of the English and Japanese markets I wanted to set up a proper serious company so I bought a very small Scottish company called Glen International that had a turnover of 18,000 pounds a year in 1984 until I got hold of it um, the following year its turnover was 3.5 billion pounds which isn't bad growth for anybody during that course of time I took some time off and I was a member of the AIBD which is the Association of International Bond Dealers at the time so once a year the international bond dealers would all sit down and get together and have a soiree upside down in the bushes in the bushes as in this particular year the bushes as it was in the south of France so I'm sitting in the south of France drinking with the lads and one or two lasses and uh, Mick Ryan rings me up I'd had a few horses and I'd expanded out a little bit from Hugh Collin Ridge and David Dale you know non non mainstream all niche players in the game Mick Ryan rings me up so I don't know Mick where you are I have a horse you gotta buy Mick I'm in the south of France drunk with the lads it's the AIBD week Terry you gotta buy this horse this horse will win the Irish Guineas on Saturday this is a Monday and I'm like what Mick, Mick leave me alone this horse ran second in the Princess Elizabeth at Epsom she led at the furlong pole it was too far for her she didn't get home she'll win the Irish Guineas on Saturday I said Mick I'm not even back till Thursday so what do you want me to do buy this horse sight unseen I guarantee you it will win the Irish Guineas on Saturday how much is the horse half a million pounds so Mick you want me to bet half a million pounds on a horse called Katie's that's only won one race was beaten in a group race at Epsom you're telling me you guarantee it wins the Irish Guineas on Saturday so I can take the jet fly to Ireland put what I want on it and it'll win yep so okay let's do it then we had the problem of the mechanics of actually getting the horse paid for getting the colors registered and all this so the guys I bought it off were some very nice Jewish guys from North London yeah Mick it's very good you know lo lovely but uh, we know Terry's good for the money but how are we gonna get our money so they were worried it's now Tuesday afternoon and and how will we and I'm stuck our way around the world upside down in the bouchers how are we gonna get our money so I had my guys draw a, a check and not like a, a real like a check right and and then the coordination was what we can do with it well the check won't clear before the race is run 
So you've got these lovely guys from North London who are clients of mix, running around with a check, rushing off to the bank in New Bond Street, in that Western New Bond Street, bless them, on a Wednesday afternoon, trying to cash the check and get it stamped to make sure that the horse was paid for before it ran on Saturday. We managed it. It was fixed. It was sorted. So I had one of the lads come and get me some cash. And then in those days, cash wasn't a problem. You could get money and go and get some money out of the bank. It's not like the world we live in there. And I flew straight to Ireland. So I get to Ireland where a guy called Michael Geraghty from Geraghty Racing, their son still actually makes a book at Doncaster. Um, he met me in Ireland. So we decided what we're going to have on the horse. So I look at the board and the horse is 20 to 1. Mick, you said this horse was a certainty to win. So he says, it's fine. It will win. So, you know, Irish Guineas is a hard race to win. So I had 50,000 quid on it at 20 to 1. And I stood the bet. They mixed it between the bookmakers. Michael Garrett, he organised it all. So there I am, standing there with Mick Ryan. And we're up in the stands, and Mick's standing next to me, he's going, Robinson came round the outside, we're going awful well, we're going awful well, and I'm like, what, what, we're going awful well. And Katie's, of course, come the outside. She went a bit too early, it was Philip Robinson, who rode it, had ridden Pebbles to win the English Guineas, and he ridden Katie's to win. She duly won, and that was that. Job done, made a million quid, Thank you very much. The rest of the weekend was quite hazy. We had a very, very good friend of ours called Patrick Flavin, a slightly eccentric Canadian, uh, American, who owned the Chicago racetrack at one point. He was with us and him and me, and, oh, I don't know what happened to the rest of the weekend. I woke up on Tuesday, I think. So anyway, we then decide, job done, well done, thank you very much. Covered the cost of the horse. What are we gonna do now? Now the next, Port of Call is to run at Royal Ascot. So by this time, then International's already starting to grow, capital's starting to flow, business is coming to me. Obviously, the famous Terry bought this house without seeing it. It's gone and won the Irish Guinness, come back with a million quid. Oh my God, what are we gonna do now? So we're gonna run at Royal Ascot. So the problem with running at Royal Ascot is you have pebbles, who was then I think unbeaten or the, the, the had won um, a very good race at Newmarket and then won the Guineas at Newmarket, ridden by Philip Robinson. He can't ride two horses. So then Philip Robinson, who was a young boy then, in his 20s, very young, early 20s, has to decide whether to ride Pebbles. It's a very, very good filly. She won the British Cup. Or Katie's. Now, the contrast, if you ever watched the race, Pebbles was tiny, like a greyhound. Cases was a huge mare. So you couldn't have two more contrasting styles than Pebbles, who was gritty and would fight, and Katie's, who was majestic and would just come there and look at where is everybody. You couldn't have a, a greater contrast. But obviously, the choice had to be Philip Robinson. So obviously, Philip Robinson was close to Clyde Britton, who's a lovely guy, highest respect for him. He has to make the choice. So Philip... <sighs> young guy, all kinds of pressure on him, won the Irish Guineas, won the English Guineas, has to make a decision like that going into Royal Ascot, knowing full well that Mick 
has had it that this horse won't get beat. And long story short, Philip decides to ride Katie's. So Lester Piggott picks up the ride on Pebbles. Now at that time, Lester Piggott was a highly respected champion, champion, champion jockey, older guy. He had the young buck, who's obviously, according to Lester, made a mistake. So Lester was quite close to Cyril Steen at the time. Cyril Steen was a very autocratic chairman of Labbrokes and the guy who built the business. And him and I had clashed on a number of occasions, let me put it to you that way. Um, so Pigger had apparently told Cyril Steen, hmm, is wrong, he's nothing wrong, he really doesn't know what he's doing, I want him, no one. Down the mat, they'll never meet me. They'll never meet Pamela. That's my invitation for Lester Piggott. Sorry, Lester. But listen, I, should, I shouldn't take offence. So now we have a situation where the press are building, you've got the English champion against the Irish champion. The English champion is owned by Sheikh Mohammed, written by Lester Piggott. Robinson's dropped himself off the English Guinness winner to ride the Irish Guinness winner. So Ascot's now fast approaching. I'm far, far, far away in Japan, far, far away in Japan. So I come back, I arrive back five days before Royal Ascot. So I go to my house uh, uh, in Newmarket, which I bought from Philip Robinson's family. And Philip Robinson unfortunately lost his dad in a tragic situation, literally out at the house um, in 1984. So I bought the house from the family and moved in. I subsequently sold the house to Barney Curley, who subsequently sold the house to Frankie de Tori. But that's, a, again, another story. So now here we are, match of matches. Has Robinson made the right choice or has he not? <laughs> so Lester's told Silverstein, thank you, mate. So I come back, I ride back in the chair, go to the house, I sleep. 20 past four in the morning. What's up? It's Mick. What? It's Mick, Mick Ryan. Come on, come on, we're going to a secret gallop. We're doing what? We're going to a secret gallop. Oh, it's four o'clock in the morning. What? It's just like So Mick was very secret in those days. Off we went, get in the car, put something on. Off we go to a secret gallop in Newmarket. So at the secret gallop, there's him and me and George Marston and Philip Robinson on Katie's, and three other horses. Two group-winning older five-furlong sprinters, Colts, and a group-winning seven-furlong horse, who was an older horse, who was a Colt as well. So Mick had said, where we are, we're standing watching, and I'm like, whoa, I can barely keep my eyes open. So gallops began, they ran hard seven furlongs up the hill. The two sprinters went off absolutely like rocket. Katie's sat in behind, and he told Robinson, sit in behind and wait with her. So as they come up the gallops, you see the two group sprinters just start to fade. The older horses come past them on the outside. And I'm looking at this, and Katie's just absolutely, he's sitting there like this. So as they come a furlong, he's pulled her out and boom, he's let her go and she's pinned clear. So mixed down and then he's on his foot like he does. Oh, whatever beats this is going to need wings. I went, that's a good bit of work. Whatever beats this is going to need wings. What do you mean? He said she had two stone in the saddle. 
You're just telling me that a three-year-old filly has given a, a group-winning older colt two stone and beat it like that in a gallop. Yep, and what you like on this, there's no way she gets beat. So in we go to Royal Ascot. Coronation Stakes. Pebbles, short price favorite. Katie's 11 to two. I'm like, are you joking? So I go in a helicopter to the course. I had 270 grand in cash that I took to the course to bet on Katie's on the rails, which normally oh, you'd smash the market. But Lester had told him, oh, I'll win, promise he's made a mistake. So Cyril had told the lads at Labrooks, whatever he wants on it, stand the bet. I had 270 grand on Katie's in cash. I had bets on credit and a hundred grand reversed forecast with pebbles. And they stood the bet and the price never moved. Because Lester had told, can't win, can't win. Well, as you see, if you've ever watched a replay of the race, luckily they were focused on the race and they weren't focused on some long-haired moustache-showed young man with a top hat and tails on standing up there with Sheikh Mohammed and the lads as they came round the bend into the straight, Pebbles kicked hard. Robinson's come right around the field and come alongside Piggott like this. These two have drawn away. They've drawn group one race, drawn, drawn 10 lengths clear of the third. So they've come inside the final furlong. Piggott's thrown everything at Pebbles. Robinson's just sat looking at him like that. I've just totally lost it. Hat's gone. <laughs> well, I, I don't know, a long final furlong, but not really because he gave her two gentle smacks and she won easy and they were a mile, mile clear. Race one, there's a very famous uh, on YouTube, if you look at one of the clips of, of uh, Mervyn Peckham, who's a lovely, lovely guy who was my stud manager then, whose son, unfortunately, Kevin Peckham, recently got killed in a tragic accident at Ryan Moore Stud. Um, it's him standing there, very pipe smoking, robust, jolly good chaps. One of that was happening, some long haired little guy running into the winner's enclosure with long hair, as long as it is now. Listen, I've still got my barnet, don't begrudge me that. With his top hat and tails on, there we are, standing in the winner's enclosure of Royal Ascot. Well, that was wonderful. Unfortunately, what happened next was kind of a longer story of a party. Okay, Terry, don't hold out on us. Tell us what happened next. Well, in those days, one did have kind of an entourage. Um, some of the lads obviously were there because of the amount of cash that was changing hands on gambling. I won slightly north of five million on the race, um, more than two million of which was in cash. And we went back to the box where there was some, some severe champagne drinking. And then we went across, we had a sing song, and then we went to the car park, the famous car park, where we had a couple of three open top Bentleys and the lads and one of my great friends, uh, Richard, um, had uh, Richard Morris from Edmonton, always did pre-packed, great, wonderful, famous pre-packed lunches. And so he made a whole load of food. We were cars full of food. A load of people came across the road to the car park. 
um, dozens and dozens of bottles of champagne, big bags of money in the back of the car. But of course, there were a, a dozen of the lads, and I'm sure that people know that my lads were quite formidable in those days. You know, six foot seven and 25 stone. There were half a dozen of them. And so we had a wonderful party until very, very, very late on in the evening. And of course, being Ascot, lovely. At some point, the car park shuts. But of course, in this case, one of the gates get left open. So the gatekeeper was, oh, Mr. Ramson, how are you? I'm terribly sorry, but we, we have to shut, you know, shut, shut the car park now. What? Shut the car park? What are you talking about shut the car park? Yeah. So I took a bunch of money, maybe 20 grand, give the boys. Oh, Mr. Ramson, don't worry about that. We, I'm, sure we, oh, I'm sure we can leave one of the gates open. Yes, yes, don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> leave the gate, leave the gates open. Well, I don't know what happened next, but at some point we left the car park with bags and bags of money in the back of the cars. I woke up the next morning at home. I went, uh, there are bodies, people, girls, people I don't know, someone sleeping in the bath. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, what happened then? So we left the house, showered down, Got a couple of hundred grand in cash, got in a helicopter, went off to Royal got left them to it. That was Thursday morning. I think my house finally got cleared on Saturday morning, give or take. In the meantime, while I am there, Mr. Ryan and Mr. Flavin were holding court in the Moat House, which is a very famous hotel we used to use in Newmarket. Uh, I think our party finished probably just before theirs did. Um, from what I understand, there were two days and two nights of drinking between Mr. Ryan and Mr. Flavin and anybody that knows Mr. Ryan will know that he has a prodigious reputation for his ability to consume alcohol, or at least he did in those days. That's not a secret. And Patrick Flavin was the same. And they'll be friends of Dave Schiappiellis, who's been a famous agent from, you know, he did Olivia Pellier for a long time and Sumion and... Um, I think a wonderful time was had by all, a fairy tale, I suppose, because you've got a long-haired young guy who's going against the establishment, who isn't very well known in racing, who's bought a whole sight unseen, won a famous race, impossible on its own, gone a champions to champions race at Royal Ascot, which is impossible on its own, against the might of Sheikh Mohammed and Ladbrokes and Lester Pigger, with a young boy called Philip Robinson, who became quite a jockey, but in those days he was a youngster. And we bet the hell out of it. And we won in a manner dismissive of like, I don't know whether the Coronation Cup's ever been won so easy with two horses so far clear of a group one field. And that was 1984 for you, which was uh, a very interesting year. As I said, the year that Glen International was born and evolved into a multi-billion pound company. Um, life kind of changed from then by one mechanism or the other. And how did uh, Cyril Nesta go on after that? Well, Cyril was probably heartbroken and because he was wrong. Um, obviously, he's not betting with his money, he's betting with the company's money. Um, but we were, uh, Cyril and I were at love heads all the time. There was a very lovely guy called Gerald Green who used to do the mitigation and offset one against the other and, and kind of, you know, make sure that, that relations were civil because it was, it was, it was hostile, you know. Uh, I would 
have half a million pound on a horse and sometimes they get beaten, eh, it happens. Million pound on a horse, sometimes they get beat. But you know, you always read about the ones that get beat, you never read about the ones that won. And again, in, with the whole Ladbroke situation, you know, it isn't quite what it appears to be. It's common knowledge. I was warned off eventually by Ladbrokes. But of course, no one actually knows what really happened, which wasn't quite what it appeared to be. Um, so life went on and, you know, in 85 and 86, I'd done really well. Japanese market grew. I bought a controlling stake in the Hard Rock Cafe group, which we made into a multi-billion pound group worldwide. I developed color systems technology, which colored the Wizard of Oz film into black and white, from black and white to color, and became Turner Broadcasting, which became Warner Brothers. And so, you know, Lifetime Corporation, which became Alston Corporation, the biggest healthcare company in the world. So corporately, I was growing and becoming stronger and growing and becoming stronger. But of course, those type of things attract the attentions of Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, as we now affectionately know them, the Inland Revenue at the time. And so, as 85 and 86 came about, obviously, the stories of gambling and gaming and and the like grew, and, and my interest in racing grew. Obviously, success breeds you to be more foolhardy than you would have done before. Um, consequently, my stable grew, and the bets became more aggressive, and um, the rest, they say, is history, but actually, again, everything isn't quite what it appears to be. You've taught the bookmakers a lesson at Royal, at Royal Ascot, a couple of years later, you've set your sights to Cheltenham, so how did all that evolve? Ah, my famous friend and I survived the party in from Royal Ascot, Mr Ryan and me. So by this time I've evolved out, I'm involved with Long Hole Stud, Mervyn Peckham uh, and his lovely wife Hazel. Um, I bought some brood mares, um, I dabbled in the breeding side, I bought a horse called Hallgate from Michael Geraghty was a group winning sprinter. Greville Starkey rode that for me at Newmarket, the Abernant Stakes, and, uh, and the Palace House. And um, I spoke to Mick about, well, what do we do now? So Mick was a very famous and obviously highly respected flat horse trainer. And I said, let's be after having a crack at Cheltenham. Cheltenham? Yeah, yeah, let's go for it. I had some national hunt horses with Jenny Pittman, obviously, um, and more traditional horses and Alan Bailey and other such lovely people. So I said, okay, what have you got in mind? He said, well, I've got a horse we bought, which we bought from Mick Easterby. Now, Mick's a lovely guy, but <laughs> he, 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 when he, he's famous for selling his teeth for, for 120 quid recently. Um, <coughs> Mick was tied up with Robert Sangster, who was an old friend of mine, and uh, he sold us a horse, which was really a star horse. And Mick went, well, this horse can run a bit. <clears throat> and I went, well, okay, what have you got in mind? Well, he said, if we're gonna do this, we can't expose the horse. So probably you can only give him like the one run over the distance to make sure he stays. And I went, Mick, 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 just a minute. 
So you sold me all for half a million quid, and okay, we had a touch, we made some money in Ireland, we won at Royal Ascot, fair play. You now want to have a crack at Cheltenham, yeah? I think this horse could probably win the Joe Coral, Coral Handicap. And that's the hardest race of the calendar at Cheltenham to win. 32 runners, impossible, even for a maths guy, okay? We all know that that's impossible. So we start to plan it out. So okay, so I see if there's any anti-post prices, and there is, and I've got lovely gold cup wannabe horse called Steersby with Jenny, who that year won the Welsh National in 19, at the end of 1986. And um, we started to plan out the, the cool motivator. So huge, big horse, we have to get a run into it. How the hell are we going to run it? So the only race we could find is a, is a race, I think it was Sandown, I think we raced the horse before Cheltenham. It only had one run, I mean, unheard of for a flat trainer in those days, especially a high-grade group one winning flat trainer, to have a national hunt horse. You're going to run one time, and then you're going to drop it into the handicap, in the toughest handicap of Cheltenham in the middle of Cheltenham week. At the same time as that's going on, I had what I considered was the horse of the year, which was a wonderful grey, a group winning flat horse who won a wonderful group three race at Chester in the mud called Brunico to win the Daily Express Triumph. Heard all the other impossible race to win. Ah, let's go for it. So what we'll do, we'll back Steersby to win the Royal Sun Alliance each way doubles with Brunico to win the Daily Express. Each way trebles with Motivator to win the Joe Coral. And like, Terry, you're absolutely lost the plot. I mean, you can't win three races like that. But oh, it's a maths equation, right? So at the prices you start backing them, which was 33 to one and 40 to one in two cases and 25 to one in the other, all the way down, if you're just placed, it comes to some very nice money in the amount of money I was betting in. You know, three ten thousand pound each way doubles and a twenty thousand pound each way treble comes to quite a lot of money when you look at the pricing structure. So we plan out motivator. Who starts at forty to one? Then he wins his first race. Only narrowly. But high class performance. Mick Ryan planned it to the T. He was our foundation. I couldn't make my mind up whether this horse was the best bet of the three or Brunico was the best bet of the three. So I just kept backing them each way, mounting up the anti-post, mounting up the anti-post. So as Cheltenham arose, Steersby, who was unfancied in the Royal Sun Alliance, very hard race to win, really, really unlucky, high-class horse, should have won the Gold Cup the following year, but Jenny and I had a tragic accident on the day of the race when he was favourite to win the Gold Cup the following year after the Welsh National win, where he pricked his foot on the morning of the race and had to be withdrawn. It was a very snowy March of 87 that year. And he'd run a tremendous race in Royal Heights. Something like he got severely hampered, almost brought down, finished third. Great place money. 
I'd backed him all the way down. I can't remember the price he started at, maybe 12 to 1, something like that. But, you know, a great foundation bet, mathematics, for really the coup of the, of, of the meeting, which was, which was Motivator and then Brunica. Motivator, of course, the famous story. We backed it all the way down to favouritism in the race. And I always remember um, John McManus saying to me, oh, you just, you're asking an awful lot. Listen, let it run. Let it run. I think Mick thinks it can win the race. I have the highest faith in Mick. And Mick says it can win. It can win. And people are looking and going, Terry, this is a 32-horse field. Is in a handicap. He's only run once, a novice. In those days, you didn't do that sort of thing. We had a mountain of money. I took hundreds of thousands of pounds in cash to Cheltenham to back it and continue to back it all the way down until I mathematically thought there's no point in backing it anymore because even with even with the place horse as DSB if this wins and going on to Brunico to win the Express you're talking about 13 million pounds then if they if the two of the three of them win so Famous story, I'm standing in the stands in my private box, JP's in the next box, and I'm looking across, and as you could see, the horse, obviously a bit novicey, huge field, slowly make ground, slowly make ground, but I could look, and in those days you didn't have this closed circuit, so you're looking in a pair of binoculars, you know, and I'm not the tallest guy, some people would tell you. My dear friend Tortel, they would call us Tortel and Short Tell because he's six foot four and I'm four foot six. Not quite, but something like that. And so I'm looking through the binoculars and I can see Motivator coming down between the third last one and the set as they come, the long run down. I'm like, oh, Jesus, he's absolutely running all over these, picking his way through the field. Graham McCourt was riding. Lovely fella. Highest respect for him. You know, huge pressure on him. A lot of money down. A lot of money on the Ishway doubles and trebles. Riding for us, for Mick hand-picked, I could see this horse picking his way through the field, so come round the bend at the top, coming down towards the last I always remember old friend Pete Rose Sullivan as he's commentating, you know, I, I completely lost it as he come down and all, all, I said, motivator come in there, very strongly for Terry Ramsden between horses as they come down towards the last motivator travelling very strongly between horses and he, I thought, oh, shut your eyes if you jump. He feels the last, jumped the last, hit the ground running, and McCourt drew right away from the rest of the field. I just it screamed from the bottom of the hill. And if you've ever looked at the hill at Cheltenham, that's a long way home up the hill. So, very famous victory. We won a cost you a lot of money, and we flew back. JP come back with me to, we'd hired some hotel in whatever. We flew back in a helicopter. Whereupon JP wanted me to sit down and play poker cards with him. Just a thing, folks. You never play cards with JP under any circumstances. So I said, John, listen, I don't do cards, okay? We've just had a wonderful day. It's wonderful. Ah, I'm having a bit of fun now. I'll tell you what we do it's much cheaper and much quicker. We've got a lot of friends in the bar. We're going to get drunk and this and this and that. 
So I'll just go and get 20 grand out of the safe, put my 20 grand on the table. That's my state money. You have a lovely day playing cards. I'll go and get drunk because JP doesn't drink. So that was the story. I put my 20 grand on the table, left them to play cards. And the next day we had the Daily Express. That was a whole disaster. Dermot Brown wrote for me. Um, and he was told, do not put this horse too far out of his ground. But unfortunately, we know it's a rough race. The, ra the way the race was ridden, he was pretty much last at the top of the hill. Scudamore was on solar cloud. And he kicked as they come down into the straight. And I'm like, oh, my God. And so here we are. I've got absolute, I mean, money, even in those days. That, that was still money to me. You know, we're talking about 35 years ago. <laughs> you know, 13 million quid on the gambling, but it's quite a lot of cash, even in those days. And so, regardless of my wealth, ladies and gentlemen, so coming down into the straight, I can see Brunico, who's almost been brought down at the top of the hill. I'm like, he's last. He can't, what was he doing? What's he doing? Delbert Brown pulled him wide and then he started to come and he's jumped the last fully in 10th or 12th place and again my dear friend Peter O'Sullivan you know his solar cloud is winning so Brunico's finishing immensely strongly and I thought he can't win and literally as Dermot Brown flew up the hill he just made one wrong decision. He decided to come on the inside of Solar Cloud and the horse that was third, instead of challenging on the outside, he still have probably have won. And he made, I don't think anybody's ever seen anything like it. He made 10, probably 15 lengths up from the bottom of the hill up to the line and he's come between horses and forced to photograph, I think we were beaten ahead by Mr. Scudamore. Um, that's life, that's racing. It happens. One great winner and two unlucky placed horses. But the place money would buy you a very nice estate in Scotland, I would imagine. Okay, Terry, there's another famous story. Uh, Housewife's favourite, Mr. Snugfit in the Grand National. Oh, housewife's favourite. Well, yes. Um, maybe not mine, but we shall see. Um, so, Mr. Snugfit had finished second in the National. And an unlucky second, probably. And I'd always wanted to win certain big races. The National, we always want to, we all want to win the National. So, I decided to buy the horse, which I bought, went back to source, and... Uh, bought it and decided that if it was ridden right and Phil Tuck I think was the rider for me that year um, with any sort of luck having finished second the previous year we'd have every shot to win the race um, I might have had a pound or two each way at quite big prices or maybe a little more than a pound or two so I bought the horse and it was well publicised I was having a crack at the National which is the hardest race in the world really the hardest race in the world to win um, you need luck you need judgment you need everything to go right I mean you know JP tried for 20 odd years 
and Tony McCoy tried for 25 years to win it, so it's not an easy task. Um, so I bought the horse, and I think I paid 100,000 quid for it, and then I started to back it as if it couldn't get beat. Obviously, it's a math equation. So when you're looking at the amounts of money you're putting on at big prices, 33s, 28s, 25s, 20s, 60s, all the way down, uh, at some point you stop shoveling money on it. And the reason you stop shoveling money on it is because your relative percentage, just like the stock market, just like the warrant market, just like everything else in life, your relative percentage of reward and non-reward doesn't actually gel. So at that point, we have a horse that's pretty much favorite for the national. Law of expectation is that, you know, Terry's one, two or three really hard, difficult handicaps to win. And he's having a crack at the ultimate. Um, that year we were very unlucky. Mr. Snugfit didn't really get the run of the race. Uh, Phil Tuck couldn't lay up with the pace and was quite far back with two to go, which wasn't the plan. But the horse was a wonderful horse, very genuine, and he kept pushing away at it, and he kept plugging away at it, and it was, it finished very, very strongly, was just beaten the head for third, it was fourth. So I paid the place money, and again, uh, wasn't a successful gamble, um, unless you consider two or two and a half million pound on the place money, uh, a successful gamble. Some people would, um, I did. And so uh, it was my first of two forays into the Grand National, um, neither of which have been successful. But in that regard, I think I gave it a very good shot. We had a good horse. We had the right horse to win. We had every chance to win. Um, the race just didn't pan out for us. The place money uh, made, the, made, made a dent in the bookies, but really, wasn't where I wanted to be. You know, the golden story, the Cinderella story, as they say, would have been to have all that, to buy the horse, for Mick to be proven right, for us all to be proven right and to win the race, but nothing's perfect. But you know, philosophically in life, you have to look at the things you do and the things that you wanna do. Um, and I've done many things in my life not a lot of which has been publicized. Uh, one of those is the good I've done and the people I've helped quietly and throughout life. Um, and to which I always carry something with me. I'm a very superstitious person. And I wouldn't be the only one, talk to Frankie, he's superstitious too. So there was a lovely couple who had a son who had a very, very debilitating disorder and they wrote to me and uh, they asked me could I help them because their son was going to die and I chose to do that quietly and without publicity and without making a big deal of it and I paid for a life-saving operation for their son who's now a big strapping young lad and um, well not a young lad big strapping man with kids and they really had nothing, and in those days I did a lot of this type of work uh, and I actually never met any of the people I'd helped. But they were actually a lovely couple, so when life took a turn against me, 
they actually wrote to me and they sent me something that I always carry everywhere I go, no matter where that is, on every occasion, which was all that they had to offer. That's what they had to offer me. So when you look at someone who is disadvantaged, who goes to someone who grew up disadvantaged for help and, and you help and you receive years and years later something like that from someone, that's something I keep very close to my heart and as you see, I never go anywhere without it, ever. And I think that in my life, that stood me in good stead. Philosophy, practicality, and I don't need to hold a candle to anybody for those type of things. Which is a whole other story, which we won't go into in this session, if that's okay with everybody. New Betting People interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.